So, Peter, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on this show. I really appreciate uh, you coming through today. So uh, maybe we could start off by having you introduce yourself to our audience, tell us more about who you are, and then also tell us more about Cybers, the company. Yes, hello, Kutsai. Uh, thanks a lot for, for inviting me to your podcast. Uh, very, very excited to be on your show. Um, my name is Peter Zorovka. I'm uh, the CEO and one of the founders of Cybus. Uh, we are a German-based, Hamburg-based, actually, Hamburg, Germany-based software company uh, in the space of smart factory connectivity. Uh, we've been founded in 2015 and are since active uh, in digital transformation of the German or European manufacturing market. And um, I think we will dive into our product uh, in a minute, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. What I would like to talk to you about uh, really today is the um, the topic of infrastructure as code, which is uh, something that is really kind of like gaining quite an importance in this uh, digitalization uh, landscape. So maybe to get started, uh, what I'd like to find out from you is um, what can you give us a, a, a definition of what infrastructure as code is, and then maybe follow up that with uh, a, a few examples or primary challenges that it seeks to address in manufacturing. Yes, of course. Uh, so let's directly dive into the deep technological questions uh, like that. Yeah. Um, so where, where, where do we start? Um, I think software development in general, yeah? software development in general is a role model for, for many things these days. Why do I say that? Because software development in the last, let's say 20, 25 years, has done a lot in terms of uh, becoming ro simultaneously robust uh, uh, in, uh, in in uh, in delivering and being able to deliver robust and functional software, and simultaneously remaining flexible and fast and adapting to change. Yeah? So uh, there is this big word agile, agility. So the ability to to uh, to define your roadmap on the go, yeah? uh, and and at the same time you have to be very robust. So while you always change your roadmap, you still have to deliver working software. So this is a big problem of software development these days, and and within this realm, so many methodologies have been developed, uh, like version control, like automated test systems, yeah, like build pipelines that guarantee that from the source code you develop, you in the end, uh, a, a deployable product is made. And uh, I think software development really is the, the area in, in which these methodologies are strongest. What we've seen in the last 10 years, probably maybe, maybe 12 or so or 15, is that these concepts um, of um uh, of of working have been applied to other areas and my favorite example is uh because it's i think very easy to understand is is the way you manage computers today um so when you are an IT administrator of of a big company and you are responsible for deploying the latest antivirus program to 1500 laptops 20 years ago, you have you would have logged into all of these laptops and clicked install. And it was very tedious and time-consuming and error-prone uh, and not repeatable and, and uh, hard to take back. Today, in order to do something like this, you would write a recipe, a script, a piece of code um, that you could test on one laptop and you could test it on another laptop. And when it works, then you would click deploy and it would be automatically uh, rolled out to, to 1,500. And if you made a mistake, you can roll back and then you are at your previous um, uh, state. And I think this this way of managing systems at scale 
um, really is inspired totally by how software development is taking place yeah, with all the agility, with repositories, with build pipelines. And as a consequence, um, the way you would manage an infrastructure like cloud servers uh, totally works like that. So when you today uh, define, I need Microsoft Azure Cloud or Amazon Web Services Cloud, I need 12 databases, 500 servers, and uh, I need to automate that in 15 minutes, I need more computing power. None of that is done manually. Everything is controlled by code, which is auditable, versionable, deployable, changeable, and so on. And I think this is really try to walk a little bit from really software development, why code? Because we have all these tool sets to managing infrastructures at scale uh, with code. And so why are you asking me that? I'm trying to, to, to directly give the answer. Yes. Um, uh, when, we, when we talk about digitizing manufacturing, when we talk about um, connecting all the assets, uh, every sensor, every machine, every robot, every uh, worker maybe, uh, every database, every system in, in a factory, then we are very quickly and easily at a large scale and a large number of assets that need to be connected, a large complexity of data orchestration that need to be managed. And um, while for especially prototyping purposes, the notion low code or no code um, has established strongly in the in the last years um, we work under the hypothesis for that for real scaling and for really um, taking or remaining in control over a system at large scale of a factory um, the infrastructure as code principles as laid out are suitable for managing data at scale um, because it gives you robustness and flexibility at the same time because you can work in an agile way and that is um, hopefully not a too long answer but that's basically my take on what is infrastructure as code and and why is it worth understanding its value for for smart factories awesome so maybe can you just to dive a little bit uh, uh into uh, into the topic here can you kind of like give us a typical workflow in a manufacturing uh setup where infrastructure as code it's being used to like uh, streamline the deployment of technological solutions. Yes, um, for sure. So let's 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 take a very simple example. Um, let's say we have a robot, and the robot uh, is fully automated. It, it knows what it's doing and so on. And we want to create a small use case that is maybe called. Uh, status monitoring of robots. Yeah? All we want to know is, is a robot currently working? Is it currently on standby? Or has, does it currently have an error or an, or some alarm? Yeah? Um, what is the value of this use case? Uh, uh, we can calculate KPIs, so we can uh, we can when we record the data, we can we can start understanding uh, how how often does a robot has an error, or we can that's probably the biggest value. We can create a notification system where a maintenance technician could react faster because he's notified once an, a robot is in a, in a, in an error state. So that's business value. Okay, so how do we build up this use case? When we, um, we, we consider we have PLC or some control on the robot where the data is available. Uh, and for, for just the prototype, I would say, just buy a Raspberry Pi, take Node-RED, connect to the robot, send the data somewhere, easy. It works. Um, and this is not an infrastructure as code approach. It is a, a no code approach because Node-RED is really drag and drop, click, data flow, done. So what happens now 
if you say, I don't have one robot, I have 750. They are identical in the first place. Uh, they only have different IP addresses. Already at this stage, the typical no-code solution has a scaling issue because, uh, of course, you can copy and paste your Node-RED flow 750 times, or you can do some kind of automation magic. Um, uh, and maybe you can even set it up, but it's but you, you're you're quickly losing losing overview. Uh, so in in this case, just just going this first step, infrastructure as code would not have Node-RED. So the way Cybers is doing it was that would not have Node-RED in in it. Um, but our product is called Cybers Connectware. It's it's uh, also capable of collecting data from PLCs and and sending it somewhere else. But the way you would configure it is you write a text-based configuration file where you describe um, uh, the the, uh, the remote host, so connect to the PLC, and you, then you describe the endpoints, so the, the the current status code, for example. And you would describe in this text file um, uh, the data model that should be applied to the, the information that is um, gathered from the robot. This text file is in a YAML format, so it's very simple, simple to read, simple to understand, human readable, um, and it directly serves as a configuration of Cybers Connectware to be really descriptive. So when you load it in Connectware, Connectware automatically would connect to the robot and start getting the data. The advantage is when we now scale this to 750, we can just use this initial configuration file as a template, uh, put a list next to it with the 750 uh, IP addresses, and uh, use IT automation tools like Ansible or GitLab or any build pipeline that you want, and actually have a, an, a notion of deploying the configuration to the large scale. That means it is, it is an extremely well-controlled process to deploy the connectivity to really a, a large deployment. And the biggest benefit you will see once you see, okay, now I have my simple status code data, but I have a new use case. I also want to read the energy data of this robot, for example, which is also on the PLC. And in the infrastructure as code world, what you would do is you um, you would take the same template and you would just enrich it with with a further data point that you would uh, want to to read out. And you click again on deploy and 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 the complete system for the seven hundred fifty robots is updated without any manual effort. And this is extremely strong because you have this configuration as a source of truth for your connectivity management. When you're then a pro user, then you would not have this text file on your hard disk, um, but you would store it in a repository where you have version control. Um, so you can, any change on, on the text files, on the configuration, any, any, any change in the data models or the assets that you have connected, um, is a, a new version of the full deployment description. And then you can even have um, review processes, for example, where you have a four eyes review. Because, so somebody's writing the file and somebody else is ver verifying if it, if it makes sense or it would break something. So really you can start to establish um, the quality control processes we have in software development. That means reviews, that means staging systems, that means QA rollbacks. And one very strong point uh, we already had at one customer who unfortunately had a cyber attack um, where all the systems went down. Once you have the complexity of your data orchestration stored in a repository, it's really a, th a question of just minutes to start over from scratch so when you have to wipe everything because you had a cyber attack you have to start over with a with a uh, with a clean 
deployment, then you can just redeploy everything because you have it stored in a repository. And that is that gives a lot of resilience to the whole system. Fascinating. Now I've got like kind of like two uh, follow-up questions or comments as it were to that. So first of all, it sounds uh, to me like this is, uh, it's mostly about the the, the 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 management of the configuration of software and it does it also include the management of the software itself or it's only mostly about the configuration of the software yeah yeah that's a uh, excellent question of course um so i think the special thing about cybers is really that we take the infrastructure as code concept into the configuration of the software that's right yeah so we say let's apply the infrastructure as code concept to the problem of PLC connectivity and data routing. That's basically our USP on the, on, on Cybus. So any smart factory that chooses our software as a data integration layer would, would, uh, would, would benefit from that. Of course, the, underlay, the, the, the underlying software, so our software itself and all the peripherals in, in such an environment also are managed by similar um, concepts specifically if you and that is that is basically something we see more and more since i would say something like one or two years is uh, companies actually using kubernetes on premise uh, in their factories and in the end this is also infrastructure as code so you have your kubernetes um, configuration your helm chart or whatever and from there, you would deploy containers and uh, the, con the Kubernetes configuration with all the auto-scaling rules and so on, or the networking rules, also from a repository. And that, of course, plays extremely well together because you have really one point source of truth from where you can manage the whole system. And, uh, and you're totally right. This, is, this, this should be included. And then I would say from, from this point, there are two other dimensions we could explore. One is um, we see customers actually integrating that into their cloud DevOps methodology. That means the same team that for a certain customer manages the cloud infrastructure can also take over responsibility managing the local um, connectivity infrastructure, including the communication to the PLC. And that is a strong advantage because you really have an end-to-end -end DevOps workflow with everything in one repository and very controlled processes. And for really scaling globally, uh, this is strong. And another completely different uh, dimension that I see coming up step by step, slowly, but step by step, is that first customers explore if they even containerize their PLCs. So they even get down to the low level where infrastructure as code not only means data infrastructure or cloud infrastructure, but even the automation itself could be integrated into the DevOps workflow. So just imagine instead of having a PLC update per year, you could continuous integration, like do multiple PLC updates per day because you have a controlled DevOps pipeline that includes a real-time component on the shop floor. And I think that's the future. And uh, what we are doing currently is just uh, like an intermediate step towards this future. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's really no doubt that this is kind of like really where the future is going with the kind of scale with which these digital systems are being uh, deployed. So, but what I would like to understand also from you is um, how do you balance this idea? So I'm, I'm, I've got a background in industrial uh, system integration. And for the most part, what I am familiar with is, is working with the UI, right? I, I kind of like really understand UI better. And I would believe a lot of OT engineers really have got no familiarity or no skills as far as dealing with uh, this infrastructure as code. 
kind of like a, a framework as it were. So how do you balance uh, that fact? Or does it mean that basically we've got a new breed of engineers that need to reach out down to the OT who already possess this DevOps skill set? Or does it mean the OT engineers need to upskill? How, 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 how do you see that balance coming up? Excellent question. Um, so first of all, uh, just to, to uh, this is a standard question we receive, yeah, and I'm I'm always a little bit surprised about it because the way you program a PLC is also text based, yeah, it's structured text, and it's even if you ask me, being a software developer, it's not a very nice and easy to learn language, yeah, and, um, but it's so these people are not stupid and they can do that yeah and we have seen a lot of um maintenance technicians um uh, getting a template reading our documentation quickly understanding how to do it and are super quick and super efficient uh, uh learning that so it's i don't think that's a big of an upskill uh when you talk about writing a configuration file and even if you use low code or no code um what i don't understand is that people assume that you would not need any IT understanding when you're using a low-code platform or low-code, but 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 actually you do. So the more data you 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 need to manage, you 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 will have to start understanding what is a loop, how is data handled, what are latencies, um, what is what is JSON yeah, as a as a as a file format, all all these things you're anyway confronted with and uh, so i don't i don't really think that uh, low code takes away completely the need to understand how a computer works yeah. but on the other hand of course there's a lot of upskilling in the industry as as a whole required because it's i mean um managing data at scale in the factory and and really being robust on that and, and and business critical is not only about pulling virtual wires yeah it's there's so much you need to do you need to define a data strategy you need to define a data semantic model or you have to choose one you need to be sure that this works for your whole organization you have to standardize that over your organization so you need a data governance structure you need to define data Stewardship. So, who's responsible that the quality of the data uh, matches uh, the expectations of the business uh, uh, processes in the end? Yeah? Um, you have to understand containers, cybersecurity concepts, how you apply that to your access control rules. Where does safety come into play? Because suddenly you are opening up an interface that might move a robot into the wrong direction. So, there's so much more. Um, you have to consider when you really connect, interconnect everything in one factory that I anyway completely doubt the realm of it should be as simple as possible because it should be as professional as possible. And what we see um, what we see developing in, in the customers that are really going forward, especially in the automotive sector and, and other larger enterprises, is that um, Teams are, uh, or center of excellences are, are are being set up, like digital enablers is a typical uh, typical name for these teams. And these teams are usually mixed teams of cloud specialists, data specialists, OT specialists, IT specialists, security specialists, and so on. And these teams are responsible for first defining the whole data strategy with everything that I just covered, and setting up a structure in the company that allows to um, actually make this technology and these possibilities available to the different manufacturing sites to support the different use cases and different digital agendas like like a shared service yeah? so that's that's what we see developing in, in the more professional customers and when you set up such a structure that is not a technological question and it's not about yaml or bitbucket or Git repositories or DevOps or infrastructure as code. That's an organizational transformation. 
because it it it, it puts a question on the table: who's responsible for the data? Who is the consumer? Who is responsible for the supply? Who's responsible for the quality of the data? And in the end, what we Cybers or even HiveMQ are selling is just the platform, the tool set for these type of departments that are trying to actually enable the digital transformation of their of their company. And sorry, now I I, I spoke a little bit into into rage, but um, I think it's it doesn't come down to connecting a to b it's much more than this and 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 so you have to define processes and so on 100 percent, 100 so fundamentally what like from uh, our conversation what i gather is that what this is all about is really ensuring that critical operation uh readiness in in dish of digital systems in in, in a manufacturing environment now in, in that domain we often hear about concepts like high availability and scalability, which again are sometimes concepts that are not uh, immediately clear to OT world what that actually means. So can you kind of like unpack for us the what does it mean for an infrastructure to be highly available or scalable? Yeah, very cool, cool question. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a type of contradiction going on. Um, when you talk to uh ot people they usually say ah it they're always in the way yeah they never open up the firewall and they don't understand what real time means yeah? okay. <laughs> because it always says real time is everything within one second and ot says that's within one millisecond yeah? okay. um ot likes things that they can touch because if there's a plc that's broken they swap it against the other one that's not broken. IT, on the other hand, says OT doesn't care about security policies. Um, and we want, and IT likes virtualization. Yeah? IT is, is a big fan of having no further hardware. So there's a really a lot of, of contradictions going on. And uh in the end what what uh what we see is that it actually takes a lot of uh, um a role in in the smart factory transformation where they really from an enterprise architecture are responsible for making the whole digital strategy uh uh so robust that you can actually put business critical operations onto this uh, system. Yeah, it's not, I mean, the example I gave earlier uh, with the robots, of course, that that's the standard is that the first use case is just a dashboard and just reading out data. But in the end, if you start giving data to, to the business uh, uh, processes, then very quickly, somebody will be reliable or some business process will be reliable, re relying on uh, on the on the data and something will stop working once the data stops so and once we are at this point so once we have use cases um uh which rely on the data that seriously that if the data flow stops production stops and we we have this even in automated motive industry then you will ask for which part of your system failed and uh, so what, what you would want to avoid is the single point of failure or a bottleneck. And uh, I think both both things, so single point of failure and bottleneck, can be um, uh, solved by having an infrastructure that provides a certain notion of redundancy. And um, so high availability usually in the classic IT sense means uh, looking at one year, your system is available 99.99999% and only in a very few uh, minutes or very few hours per year, uh, there is either a failure or it's not available because of an update. And of course, being business critical in a 24-7 uh, production, you need to uh, achieve this goal, right? 
Um, Kubernetes is a very good foundation for this um, because these modern container tools uh, tool chain um, gives you the possibility to deploy software um, that scales with your needs and that uh, provides failover mechanisms. But of course, your your all software components have to to um, to also support this uh, this redundancy. Redundancy can can mean, if you ask me, two two fundamental things. One is um, really a system that is just duplicated um, in the sense of my data flow is not going only through uh, one MQTT broker, but through two MQTT brokers. And when one fails, the other one takes over. Now we have, of course, the problem that uh, if uh, both MQTT broker while running are um, under good load, and then one has to take over all the loads uh, because the other one fails. And probably you have one remaining MQTT broker that is then overloaded. So you probably want to, to engineer your system to be um, a little bit. So if you need redundancy, then your system need to be much bigger uh, than the load you actually designed it for. Otherwise, it won't be able to handle the load when it has to uh, compensate the failure of one node. So there's a lot of engineering going on. Um, uh, that means uh, balancing the load between the, the different uh, components and the failover mechanisms um, are, I think, the both uh, two most important factors of redundancy. But what, what we see, what is often underestimated, especially when we talk about um, uh, OT connectivity, is that it's really hard to have the redundancy completely end-to-end. -end. What does it mean? Um, it's easy to have a redundant MQTT broker. Yeah? Our build broker can be deployed in a cluster. HiveMQ can be deployed in the cluster. That's pretty easy. But can you also have full redundancy on the connectivity to the PLC? That is, from an engineering perspective, really a hard question. Because uh, as soon as you have two um, pieces of software that simultaneously talk to a certain PLC, which is, by the way, not always possible because many PLCs only allow one concurrent connection. Uh, uh, so you don't want to overload the PLC because that might, again, uh, disturb the manufacturing process. So you, this is the first issue. And then uh, reading the data simultaneously two times uh, but making sure that you don't get the double data in the end. There's a lot of uh, really nitty-gritty details that uh, that makes the connectivity uh, not fully redundant end-to-end. -end. And you have to really be careful how you design your system uh, so that you don't end up with double data or overloaded components or um, because this can really... Uh, uh, fuck off your whole use case in the end if you, if you do not do that right, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's really, really interesting. So now you've already touched a bit on the idea of uh, uh, data governance, but I would like us to kind of like dwell on that uh, a bit. So can you can you share with us uh, what, in your opinion, is, a, is an effective data governance strategy for digital transformation in manufacturing? Data governance is, uh, is a complex topic um, because where does it start? Uh, I've seen customers uh, that um, have created a full um, data governance framework. They have defined their semantics. They have defined their data models and everything. And then they have realized, oh, when somebody in my company purchases a new machine, uh, then this is the point where uh, where you define the data structure and the data interfaces uh, for your supplier. So maybe we should take in uh, the the, uh, the purchasing of machines and systems into our data governance framework, so that can really become really really big. Um, and uh, so it's, I, I would say data, 
very often this data governance is answered with using the right tools for data governance. But again, here, I would say the first thing is to have the organization and the processes right, because you really have to be extremely careful who um, has the end-to-end end end responsibility so that the data governance system in the end works and is efficient and not disturbing other processes. Because if you do, if you if you disturb other processes, then you will not find acceptance uh, in your organization, right? So that means the, the the establishing of a data governance system, I would say, especially when it comes to, to manufacturing and all these different vendors, existing relationship, brownfield factories and so on is super, super, super complex. Um, um, what what we try to establish is a approach that is, um, I would say, layered, because um, very often we see a conflict between the requirements of a certain factory, which wants to remain autonomous, yeah, uh, to a certain extent. Uh, um, and the requirements of, for example, uh, the, the the group, yeah. So the, the the actual company, yeah, which might have 100 sites, and every sites want to remain sovereign over their own data. But then on the group level, of course, you want the the data in a certain standard approach, and that means you have probably two data governance domains. Yeah, you have you have one local and one uh, one central. And I think also here you have to to um, to find the right balance uh, to um, to really take everyone with you um, because if you if you want to make it too um, standardized over all the sites, then uh, you might find so much resistance and you might end up fighting against uh, all the local individualities. Um, that in the end you don't uh, you don't you don't uh, end up with a working data governance system. So that means, in the end, what I recommend customers usually is defining a simplified, quite abstract, high-level, uh, group-wide uh, data structure um, as the standard everybody has to integrate with, and then leave a certain degree of freedom. For the for the local sites, how they actually um, uh, do the integration and the data management themselves, because uh, in the end, if the one just stupid example, if 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 in one country everybody has Siemens controls and in another country everybody has Rockwell PLCs, then you you have so different um, prerequisites. That it's anyway not making any sense uh, to define that too strictly, but it's a, it's a, it's it's a, something you find you have to find the right compromise with. I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. So you um, mentioned uh, Cybers Connectway, your software solution. Could you walk us through the approach and mechanisms that uh, are employed by your Cybers Connectway? Uh, for 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 infrastructure as code and all the 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 stuff that we we've been talking about um uh, so far and then maybe kind of like give us an a high level overview of like an architectural uh, uh, layout of how that would look like with cybers connecting <clears throat> yeah maybe i start with the second um okay. so i mean first of all cybers connect just for uh, everybody who does not know the solution uh, well, I, th I think we we dived into the deep topics uh, in the beginning. So that's so our product is a, a software suite um, consisting of different components, and the core is a enterprise-grade industrial MQTT broker that is our central point of data exchange, um, uh, which offers all degrees of uh, um, high availability and load balancing. Um, around that. Uh, and and this this broker is always a local on-premise broker. Yeah, that's very important. So Cybus always works the same way. We always have a full Cybus Connectware per factory, which is a local factory data hub. So um, usually, as soon as uh, we go um, 
uh, into a site overarching setup. Usually, um, we then from a local Cybus Connectware would send the data into some IoT platform, some uh, global broker, which could be Kafka in, in, in many cases, or it could be an Azure event hub. Um, so we always are only local in the in the factory. So around the MQTT broker, we have a very important component we call um, agents. So the agents are actually responsible for the data communication into all different systems. That means the agent is a, like a universal translator. They can um, uh, communicate with the PLCs, yeah, with all the different protocols. We can communicate with the CNC machines, with the building automation, with energy meters, with databases, with the MES. And and usually, um, and, and you can have as many agents as you want. And usually you would really define your agents uh, in a very um, logically separated um, uh, uh, fashion. That means you have one agent for all the welding robots and another agent for all the energy meters. And maybe you have two agents for connecting the SAP. Uh, so you can really split the agents. Um, I always say from a from a picture perspective, when when Cybus is like the data autobahn, yeah, uh, then every agent is like an own lane, so you can really split the traffic, and nobody gets into the way of the others. What the agents also can do is uh, not only gathering the data from the machines, but also um, enriching them with context. That means, um, for example, we read out the current status of the robots, yeah, like we had it in the earlier example. And at the same time, we read out the current order number of the robot from the MES. So we can uh, really join these two data sources into one piece of information, really creating like process digital twin. Um, so we can see for which order there was an issue with the robot. So we can probably understand immediately which order needs manual rework in the in the process afterwards. Um, then we have in this whole system a security model. Um, that means uh, Cybus does not allow any unencrypted or unauthenticated communication, which is very important for us because usually it's um, we cannot only read data from the machines, but we can also always write back. That means we can control machines. So it's immediately a security issue. So if you would be able to inject the wrong message, and that means we have a strong access control system that by default allows nothing. And you really have to um, to explicitly allow which client, which connection may read or write data into which direction. So, and this is the, this is already it basically, yeah? Um, so that is Cybus. And the whole, um, and and usually when it, when you don't touch it, it just, reads out the data, uh, encrypts the data, transforms the data, sends it to the different systems. Um, and uh, coming back to the infrastructure as code we had in the beginning, the whole logic, so which data is read from where, how is it transformed, uh, when is it, is it joined, when is it filtered, or uh, which data uh, must be buffered in case of an uh, internet interruption, and which is not buffered because buffering is expensive yeah all of this complex configuration is stored in a repository because cybus is configured like infrastructure as code um in a typical setup um we um we collect the data from all machines from all shop floor assets so we, we put like a layer on top of the shop floor. But very often, we do not have only a single data target, um, but multiple. And this is also connected to the current trend we see that all production IT systems step by step move into the cloud, right? So the, the most famous example of the recent times was SAP, who decided to discontinue their MES SAPME, yeah, um, which is, I think, discontinued for 2028 or something like that, which is a local MES. And, and the new product is a cloud-based MES. It's called SAP DMC or so. 
And uh, suddenly, the, the MES is a SaaS solution, which is natural. But of course, what the first thing that happens from an architectural point of view is that it creates a lot of distance between the MES and the shop floor. Yeah? So what we see at customers is that they have to migrate to this cloud-based SAP, which needs data from the machine. They create an Azure or AWS-based data lake, uh, which is another cloud. It's another cloud. It's, it's an SAP cloud, company cloud. And then maybe you have an energy management system and a maintenance system, and everything is a different cloud, which needs to supply with data. And what we do with Cybos is usually collecting the data, unifying everything, and then supplying all systems simultaneously with the data. So you have all the different data targets, but with a single layer of indirection and a very clear governance and control um, um, over over the whole data flow. So that is that is a typical um, setup and the typical architecture, and it creates a lot of clarity for the for the for the customer because you have a very defined OTIT uh, uh, um, uh, convergence layer it's almost like a demilitarized zone DMZ from a network security point of view yeah, because there is no network yeah. communication into the production network and at the same time due to the high availability of the whole system it is not a single point of failure, but a very robust and reliable um, data throughput system. Awesome. That sounds really um, great, which kind of like really also um, uh, triggers something also in uh, 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 in respect to um, another player in that space. As you may know, um, uh, Azure, Microsoft currently has Azure IoT operations in uh, public preview, I guess and probably going to be still in public preview by the time we publish this podcast, which in some way is in direct competition to maybe applications or solutions like yours and also HiveMQ. What, what is your opinion on that? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I think, so first of all, um, first of all, I see that positive, yeah? Uh, positive because the more players on the market work into the same direction. Uh, it gives confirmation for the mission we are on, uh, both Cybus and HiveMQ, um, that the technology based on MQTT containers and everything we just discussed uh, um, is really the future and, and we see it confirmed. Yeah, So it's better to have competition on on, on company level than on concept level. So it's not a, it's not like yeah, Blu-ray and DVD plus. So that's two totally different concepts, but it's the same concept, different companies. So in the first place, positive. Um, then I'm really curious how this will develop because what we have seen in the past from hyperscalers is that they quickly come up with new products and they quickly discontinue products as well. So that's especially... Microsoft, what we have seen in the last 12 months, essentially, is uh, the discontinuation of um, Azure IoT Edge, which was the solution of Microsoft until last year. Okay. And a lot of customers were really upset because they basically discontinued this within six months or so, and not like oh. 10 years, everybody else in the industry would usually assume. Now. So what we've seen is that the hyperscalers struggle, that's my assumption, they struggle um, really offering um, on-premise products because not because not because they cannot or they couldn't. Uh, of course, I mean Windows is an on-premise product, but factories are so different, and dealing with factory IT systems is so hard that from a hyperscaler's perspective, it just does not scale. Yeah, it's just tedious, and uh, hyperscalers are quick in killing things that don't scale quick enough. And so I would be careful um, relying on that too much when if when I was an enterprise architect. And the third point I would mention here is um, we talked a lot about data governance already, but we have not talked about data sovereignty so far. And I'm really concerned that 
we have currently, I mean, there's a lot of talks about that, yeah, also with Manufacturing X and Gaia X and so on about creating a U European sovereign cloud or European data sovereignty. But I'm not convinced so far that there's really an approach that really could compete with Amazon or Microsoft on, on the infrastructure level. So we have an extremely strong um, cloud market only from the US with no European player, no Siemens, uh, no Bosch has something against this. And I would say everything that happens within the factories on premise is a last resort basically of the manufacturers remaining uh, sovereign of their own data because in the end we know who owns the data and essentially controls the factory and I'm, I would really be concerned if that would be too strong, too strongly owned um, by a hyperscaler also within the factory walls. And I think uh, we as both HyphenQ and Cybus as uh, even German, but I would say essentially European independent players um, are really a good alternative for the for the customers to 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 remain in control over their local infrastructure and and thus uh thus their data and that's that's something I'm, I'm really fighting for with with my whole team every day awesome that's um uh, great take there so to kind of like uh, really bring this all uh, uh together do you have perhaps and any success stories or case studies that you could share with us where uh, the employment of um, infrastructure as core principles really uh, benefited uh, the company. Yes, absolutely. Um, let's uh, let's take two 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 different um, uh, things. Here's here's one uh, example where I can uh, uh, even name the customer, which is um, Krone. Krone is a German manufacturer of. Um, truck trailers and uh, agricultural machines. And <clears throat> we recently have published a case study with them because we have built a greenfield factory together. Greenfield means really a new factory that literally has been built on a, on a cornfield um, uh, last year. And they did something extremely interesting. Um, they defined the whole factory architecture to be event-driven, that means Everything that happens in this factory, the welding robot, the AGV, the quality management, the MES, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the intra-logistics, everything is a consumer or a producer of events. They defined an MQTT-based topic structure and event semantic. And um, when they planned their factory, they went to all of their suppliers and they said, we don't want any customization except you have to integrate within this into this event layer. Um, and if you cannot do it, just give us your product in the way it is and we will just um, add a conversion on top of it. Yeah, Like, for example, give me an OPC UA server. Don't care about the event layer. We will create a, a mapping into the event layer. And uh, Cybus in this case is is a broker, so we we are basically the the exchange point for all the events, and that means if they now and they step by step the production is already running and they are extending it because they are building new halls and uh, um, new uh, uh, commissioning new equipment and so on, and every new system that is added to this factory just has to be plugged into this event layer, and the whole interconnectivity of everything is defined in code and they have full control and it's super easy for them uh, to configure this factory without any IT integration projects. And that's of course from a from a greenfield uh, production planning point of view is getting getting into production of such a new factory, getting rid of all the IT projects that might slow you down because they were underestimated as every IT project is, and in the end expensive and lead to a system that is uh, that has more technical depth than flexibility. Yeah? And compared to that, this uh, Krone Smart Factory is really a role model. And I think that's uh, can be really boiled down to all these um, concepts that we just discussed. That's one. The second is a customer of us where I'm 
struggling mentioning the name in this context yeah. is an automotive uh, manufacturer who um, decided to um, uh, go very far in their digitization. They have cloud-based production control already. So really um, moved a lot of IT systems into the cloud for a new line. And you see in, in a car factory, automotive factory, usually you have two times per year where you can change something on the IT level. That's what they call BU, Betriebsunterbrechung. Yeah? So you can, you can twice a time, twice a year, there's an interruption which is planned during holidays and then you can actually change things. And that is, of course, uh, understandable yeah, for, uh, because you, you may not never interfere with production. And because in the end, every couple of minutes, the new car must be ready. Um, but of course, it is a total inhibitor of innovation because you have twice a year where you can innovate and then you never may, may never fail. And when you may never fail, as you know, uh, you cannot dare anything. And so what our customer has been doing, they have created the whole data integration layer with Cybus and based on infrastructure as code. They are able to deploy a new configuration, onboard new assets, tweak their data models, integrate new use cases multiple times per day during serious production. And that is strong because that allows incremental tiny changes. And once you are set up to doing incremental changes, you suddenly can dare things because an incremental change that was wrong, you can take back. And, and then you really come into this agile framework and you get really flexible from your production and that is uh, um, a super strong success story which they currently are extending through the whole factory currently it's one line and they're they're currently extending it to all the other lines as well because it just makes uh, the whole it of this factory so manageable amazing now finally um where do you see infrastructure is caught and all the concepts surrounding it in a in a few years i mean these days technology is moving so fast i don't know if it's useful to project uh, what happens in a few years so what do you think it's going to be in the future what do you see then uh very very clear i think i think uh the whole concept of low code especially at, at least for this layer yeah i mean I, I like low code, yeah, for certain things. Uh, if I configure my CRM and I want to activate an email notification once a deal is won, for example, yeah, okay, yeah, easy, click, click, click. That's done in low code, and I'm happy about that. But defining robust infrastructure uh, needs uh, much more professionality and much more uh, thoughts and testing and so on. And I think. This infrastructure as code concept is strong and will become only stronger because as I tried to lay out in the beginning of our conversation already, um, I think everything moves towards software and not only software plays a bigger role, but I'm deeply convinced that when we look 10 years ahead, a factory is planned or a factory architecture is planned like today a software architecture would look like. I think factory architects start to think in microservices and so on. And so it's only natural that this infrastructure as code concepts uh, become more and more important. And I even have heard customers saying that in 10 years, they want to operate their factories like they operate their data centers today, which is confirming that assumption and it's clear because first it's uh it's creating a higher innovation speed and second it allows even with labor shortage issues that are coming up it allows um remaining in control of the scale and regarding all the complexity and the skills that you have mentioned earlier i think and that is also what we are working on uh for the next year and i can give give a small sneak peek on that. I think generative AI will play a huge role here because the only downside of infrastructure as code is the learning curve. And generative 
AI takes away the learning curve completely um, because suddenly the infrastructure can be AI generated. Maybe you need somebody who is competent enough to review what the AI is producing, fair. But ima I imagine a future factory where I can, like Captain Kirk on the bridge, yeah. uh, say, route the data of these three robots into my SAP and the rest just happens. And, and I think um, with all the foundation work that we've done, that is extremely achievable given uh, the generative AI development of the last months. And uh, yeah, that's, that's totally the direction that I see. Awesome. So that brings us to the end of this session. Peter, thank you so much again for taking the time to come through this show and um, really unpacking some insights for the audience. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Kutai.